Hello, this is Brian Bullington, and I am pastor of New Song Family Church in Ventuk, Namibia. I'm so glad that you have joined us today, and it's my prayer that this podcast message will help you to grow closer to Jesus as you walk daily with Him. Good morning, church. Welcome to Lockdown Sermon number three, I think we're on to now. I don't know, the days just kind of start blending together after a while. I'm here at home. You're there at home. You know, we're in this together, even though we're separated by a distance. But, you know, parts of this are actually kind of cool. You can be there and enjoy the comforts of your own home. You probably got your coffee. I got my hot chocolate here. And, you know, you didn't have to get up and go out this morning. So you don't have to take all that time doing your hair and your makeup and all that. So it's kind of like what it's like for me every day. You, you know, you can wear your pajamas around all day and nobody really cares. But I've noticed in the comments section that we are missing that, that relational connection. And a lot of that is, is what church is all about, that, that fellowship and accountability and, and relationship that we share with each other. And that's exactly why this isn't our normal mode of church. This is just for necessity uh, out of these times. But it is great that technology allows us to meet like this, so we don't have to just stream some popular pastor A or B from some mega church overseas, but we can meet together and share, you know, see familiar faces you know, and, and, and go through the same passage together and be able to uh, apply these things to our local context. So uh, thanks for joining us, us here this morning, and I'm glad that we could do this while we wait until we can come back together again soon. Okay. Did anyone ever tell you as a kid, as you were growing up, that you need to choose your friends carefully? Or maybe you've said that to your own kids, or maybe you've told the youth that. And why do we say that? It's because our friends influence us. Sometimes even in ways that we don't even realize. I'm originally from the Boston area in the States, and I grew up watching American football, and, uh, but I never really cared about our other sports teams, you know, the baseball, basketball, ice hockey, uh, those teams. But then I met a new friend, and his name was Jason, and Jason is all about his Boston sports. And so we would talk football together because that's something that we had in common. But then when he would start talking about the Boston Red Sox, that's our baseball team, then I was just like, eh, because I don't really care about baseball. But then I thought, well, in order to relate to, to Jason on these things, then I should probably learn a little bit about baseball, okay, for his sake. And so one of the things that I learned was that apparently to be a Boston Red Sox fan means that you have to hate the New York Yankees. It's just a fact, all right? And so um, I don't really care about the Yankees because I don't really care about baseball. But I thought, okay, for Jason's sake, I'm gonna try and be a, a good Boston Red Sox fan. So, okay, fine, I can hate the New York Yankees. And then the more that we hung out, uh, Jason and I, the more I would hear about this historic rivalry and, and this particular Yankees player that he hated or, or that particular year that they knocked us out of the tournament. And so that now, even if I just see a New York Yankees logo, I get that kind of tightness in my chest because I've learned to hate the Yankees. Our friends influence us. 
And so we start to become like them. You know, it's like when you marinate your meat before the bride so that it soaks up that flavor. Our friends' ways of thinking starts to soak into our ways of thinking. And the things that our friends value start to soak in and become the, the kind of things that we value. And so we need to choose our friends carefully because they influence the kind of person that we become. But the problem with that is that we live in a sinful, fallen world. And the way that the world thinks is basically opposite to the way that God thinks. And the kind of things that the world values are very different from the kind of things that God values. But for our whole lives, we've been marinating and soaking in and, and being influenced by the, the thinking and the values of the world around us. And so that oftentimes, a, the way that a Christian thinks and, and lives is sometimes indistinguishable from the world. So that is the issue that James confronts in chapter 4. He says that you guys have chosen the wrong friend. You've chosen to be friends with the world, and that's influenced you to live worldly lives. And I'm afraid, friends, that that indictment is just as true for the church today. So we're going to look mostly at chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, but um, I'm also going to overlap a little bit with Ziggy's sermon from last week and, and kind of borrow those last few verses from chapter 3 because a lot of those same themes carry over into chapter 4. So do keep your Bibles open uh, before you uh, to these verses because we're going to keep referencing them throughout. But let's start by reading chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So you see that there are two kinds of people contrasted here, two different ways of life. And this is a very familiar concept from the Old Testament. If you're reading the book of Proverbs, they're always talking about the wise person and the fool. In this passage, it's heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom. And a key point that I want us to keep in mind here as we go through this, which Ziggy helpfully brought out for us last week, is that what is on the inside is what comes out. Right? Uh, what happens if you squeeze an orange? What do you get? Okay, well, besides a sticky mess, uh, you get orange juice because it's an orange. Right? What's on the inside is what comes out. And similarly, the way that we think, or in the language of these verses, the kind of wisdom that we follow, that affects how we live. 
So just keep that in mind as we go along here. What's on the inside is what comes out. But let's start with heavenly wisdom. Who is wise and understanding among you? Notice that is a self-assessment. Who thinks that they are wise and understanding? Well, how will we know? By his conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Right? So it's his conduct or his way of life that reveals the kind of wisdom that are following heavenly wisdom. You are wise and understanding. Or we could say it this way, that you're thinking in line with heaven. That you're thinking the way that God thinks. And that then overflows into your conduct. And what is good conduct? Verses 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Those are the characteristics of the person who follows true heavenly wisdom. But that's not the way that the world thinks. The world doesn't think that that's wisdom. In fact, the world thinks that that is foolishness. Wisdom in the world's eyes is looking out for myself. It's advancing my own position, my own possessions. Verse 14, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. In other words, don't think that you actually have true wisdom. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but this is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. That's the kind of wisdom that you follow. Then, then it overflows into the kind of life that you live. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Because they're thinking according to earthly wisdom. They're living worldly lives. What's on the inside is what comes out. Now, if we look at this kind of from a bird's eye view, looking down at these two ways of life, it's, it's, it's kind of clear, I think, to us that heavenly wisdom it is what is good and right and true, and that earthly wisdom is actually false and deceitful. But from our view on the ground, don't we always think that we're right? We always think that, that our way of thinking is the right way of thinking and that the opposing view, well, obviously, that's wrong. Dallas Willard has a really helpful illustration here about uh, a jet fighter pilot. Okay, You know jet planes because they are going so fast, they can uh, do all these cool maneuvers and, and configurations and stuff. And so he describes this one jet pilot who's cruising along and goes to make a, a steep incline and crashes right into the ground because she didn't realize that the whole time she'd been flying upside down. That's what it's like following earthly wisdom. The whole time you think that it's wisdom until the day when you realize that everything's backwards. 
that what you thought was wisdom is actually foolishness. And what you thought was foolishness was actually true wisdom. You see, according to God, the way that the world thinks is upside down. So James sets out these two ways of life. That the first, following heavenly wisdom, that leads to a life of good, uh, good conduct and, and a peaceable life. But that's not the way that his readers are living. Uh, that they are following earthly wisdom, which overflows into a life of disorder and every vile practice. In other words, they're thinking the way that the world thinks. And as a result, they're living the way that the world lives. Which brings us to chapter 4. So let's start with verses 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions or your pleasures or your desires are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions or your desires. So they're busy fighting and arguing and warring with each other. And you see that it says murder there. Now most commentators doubt that this is a literal murder, although it could be. But it could also be something like what Jesus said in Matthew 5, that their anger and their hatred is equivalent to murder. Or it could be that if they continue on this path, then its ultimate end will lead to murder. But where's all this conflict coming from? Well, James says it's their selfish desires. Some people have and some people don't have. And so those people who don't have, they covet and they envy and desire those things that those people have. But it's not just that they have this envious desire. But the only reason that they want those things is so that they can use them to fulfill their pleasures. And so we see the same principle at work again, that what's on the inside is what comes out. Because they have these selfish, worldly desires in their hearts, it overflows in a life of envy and covetousness, bitterness, arguments, fighting, conflict. It's like James says back in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Man, what a disaster. All because they have been influenced by the world to value the things that the world values. So now we come to some of James's harshest language in the whole book. Verse 4. You adulterous people. Up to this point, James's typical address has been brothers and sisters, but now he calls them adulteresses. Once again, this is language straight out of the Old Testament. That God often pictured himself as a husband and his people as his bride. But... God's people in the Old Testament, Israel, were constantly committing spiritual adultery. They were prostituting themselves by going out and worshiping false gods. 
In a very vivid illustration, God tells his prophet Hosea to go and marry a prostitute. And so he does. Marries her, and uh, they have a few kids together, and then she cheats on him. She prostitutes herself with other men. Hosea's marriage pictures God's relationship with his people. That God remains faithful, but God's people, when they choose to love their sin, to find pleasure and satisfaction in their sin, they're committing adultery against God. And so James calls them adulteresses. And then we come to the crux of it all. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, I think you know enemy, but that word enmity is not one that we use every day. It means hatred to the point of murder. If you're one who follows the church calendar, then you know that today, the week before Easter, is Palm Sunday. That it's the day that we celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But we also know the rest of the story. That less than a week later, the crowds would be shouting, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! That is enmity against God. Hatred to the point of murder. Literal murder. Nailing, pounding those nails through his hands and through his feet, hanging the Son of God on a cross to die. Friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God. Now when we're talking about friendship with the world, we're not talking about the, the physical planet Earth, right? When James uses the word world, he's talking about the nature of a world corrupted by sin. So a worldly person is someone who lives according to the sinful ways of the world and not according to God's ways. Okay? So when you choose to kind of buddy up with your sinful nature, uh, then your friend influences you. And you learn to think the way that the world thinks, following earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom. Okay, so for example, maybe you think, well, my own personal satisfaction in this life, that's what matters most. Look out for number one. Or maybe you think, if God was really good and loved me, then he wouldn't let anything bad happen to me. Or maybe you think, you know, we shouldn't talk about sin very much. That might hurt somebody's feelings. You know, what's right for me is not necessarily what's right for them. We've got to be tolerant. That is worldly wisdom, which is not actually wisdom at all. Your friendship with the world has allowed you, has, has influenced you to think the way the world thinks. Or our friendship with the world also uh, teaches us to value and love and desire the kinds of things that the world values and loves and desires. So, for example, maybe uh, your life pursuit has been to get a good education so that you can then get a good job, so that you can then make a lot of money. Then you will be happy and content and secure. 
or maybe it's a particular pair of shoes, or a car, or a house, or a certain qualification, or sexual satisfaction, or how about this one? It astounds me how much we make an idol of our physical appearance, right? Health and, and nutrition aside, the amount of time and energy and money that we put into convincing other people that we are young and fit and beautiful. Go read 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, Matthew chapter 6. The pagans seek after these things, but you seek first the kingdom of God. As John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And so being friends with the world makes you an enemy of God because the two are in opposition to each other. Like Paul says in Galatians 5, chapter, or verse 17, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want. Okay, one last illustration here. It is astonishing what adultery can do to a relationship. I've seen firsthand close friends who have gone from happily married to the most vicious enemies you can imagine. And I'm sure each of you have your own story in this regard as well. The betrayal, the disloyalty, the lost love, the unfaithfulness. Think of that enmity. And then you'll get a small picture of what our sin does to our relationship with God. In verse 5, James continues uh, building on this point, looking back to the Old Testament for some scriptural support. Now, the original Greek, there's a bit of ambiguity here, and so depending on which translation you're using, it might say something different. Now, the trouble is, it's not like he's quoting from a particular verse in the Old Testament. It's more general themes from the Old Testament, so it's not like we can just go back and copy that particular verse. But really, uh, any of the ways that they translate it, it doesn't drastically affect our interpretation. So, if you're reading from the old NIV or the King James Version, then it might say something like, The spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely. And so this would just be supporting what he said in verses 1 through 3, that the human spirit is bent towards envy and selfish desires. Or if you have a new living, then it might say something like, The Holy Spirit whom God has placed within us opposes our envy. And if that's the case, then it supports what we've just been saying from verse 4, that friendship with the world is enmity with God, that the two are incompatible. Or if you have an ESV or an RSV, then it might say something like, God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. And if this is the case, then it emphasizes that God is a jealous God, that he longs for us to be wholeheartedly committed to him 
and not running after counterfeit gods and spiritual adultery. So each one of those things is right and true and supported by the Old Testament. But the main takeaway here is that by befriending the world and by living out of the selfish desires in our hearts, we make ourselves enemies of God. Verse 6. But. Isn't that a great word? Because it indicates a contrast, right? So going back, our friendship with the world has made us enemies of God, but he gives more grace. Undeserved favor. He reaches out his hand to his enemies, offers forgiveness and reconciliation. I mentioned Hosea before. After his wife had committed adultery, God told him, go back and get her and love her again. And so he finds his wife who had cheated on him, betrayed him in the most intimate way possible, and brings her back home and loves her again. God remains faithful even when his people are unfaithful. Right? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Though we make ourselves enemies of God, he gives more grace. More. That's a comparative word. So more than what? Oh, more than your sin. More than enough. Isn't that great news? Especially for that Christian whose desires are warring within them. That our desire to follow God is pulling us one way, but our worldly desires are, are pulling us the other way. This is Romans chapter 7. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Don't, don't be afraid. Don't despair. He gives more grace. So, what do we do about it, right? Uh, we've become friends with the world and allowed the world to influence our thinking and our values, and, and that's affected how we live. But I want to be done with that. I want to receive God's grace. I want to be friends with God, not friends with the world any longer. So how do I do that? That is exactly where James goes next. He, he gives us a list of exhortations or challenges uh, about how we should respond. So number one, humble yourselves. He says this first and last, it's kind of like bookends of this whole section. So there in verse uh, six, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And again in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Right? It takes humility to admit that you are wrong. It takes humility to say, God, I need you. That's why it's hard for a very independent person to come to God because their pride gets in the way. But first you have to admit that you have a problem before you can get the solution. And that takes humility. And verse seven, 
Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. It takes humility to submit to anybody. But consider this. Submission only happens when you disagree. Right? If you both agree, then nobody has to submit to each other. You just do what you both want. It's only when your desires are in opposition to each other that one party has to submit to the other. But this is what we've been saying all along, right? That our natural tendency is towards sin and sinful thought patterns and sinful desires. And those things are in opposition to God's thoughts and God's desires. And so when our desires are warring within us, we need to submit our desires to God. Give up your sinful desires and replace them with godly desires. He continues, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now somebody might be saying, Look, James, I have been trying to resist temptation, but the devil is not leaving. This temptation just keeps getting stronger. If that's the case, then chances are you're not actually resisting. Right? Maybe you struggle with it for a little while, but then eventually you just give in. The more that we give in, then the easier and easier it is to keep giving in. Dallas Willard calls this spiritual inertia. He writes, Habitual following of a desire leads to strengthening the power of that desire over us. In the realm of the will, there is something like the power of inertia in the physical realm. It is easier to do what you have done than what you have not, and especially than what goes contrary to what you have done. You tend to keep on doing what you have done, and the more so, the more you have done it. That is spiritual inertia. Remember the principle of inertia from science class? That an object in motion will stay in motion or an object at rest will stay at rest until acted upon by an external force? It's similar in the spiritual life, that you tend to keep on doing what you have been doing. So if you say yes to temptation, then it is easier to keep saying Yes, but if you keep saying no, then it gets easier to say no. So this is where these two ideas, resisting the devil and drawing near to God, uh, work together. Because remember how we said that you are influenced by your friends? Well, the closer that we draw near to God, funny thing, that he starts to influence your thinking and your desires. That the, the more you dive in and, and read God's Word, then the more you start to think the way that God thinks. And the more you think the way that God thinks, then the more you start to desire the things that God desires. You know, funny thing, it's almost like we're being transformed by the renewing of our minds. How about that? Until we come to the point of Psalm 97.10, O oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. As we learn to love the things that God loves, then we learn to hate the things that God hates. And so, then our sin actually 
starts to become less and less desirable to us. That thing that used to be so tempting, now it looks disgusting. Right? That not because the temptation itself has changed, but because our desires have changed. Because now we're starting to look at the world right side up. Two more things here. James continues. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Okay, so for those who have been looking for a direct application to this coronavirus situation, well, here it is. Wash your hands, you sinners! Kidding. But not really. Actually, wash your hands. Again, what we see is the, these, he's not talking about actual, literal hands here, that it's about what you do. That cleansing your hands is about cleaning up your behavior, your conduct, your life, okay? And purifying your hearts, it's about your internal desires. And he calls them double-minded. That is, double-minded in, in their loves. That they have split loyalties. But the psalmist writes, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Remove worldliness from your life, from your heart, and be wholeheartedly, single-mindedly committed to God. And then lastly, in verse 9, he says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, he's not just being depressing here. It's a call to repentance. Godly sorrow leads us to repentance, turning away from your sin and turning towards God. Sometimes people are, are forced into repentance because they get caught. But that's not what he's talking about here. This is about weeping over your sin. When was the last time your sin brought you to tears in repentance? Is that how you feel about your sin? It should be. Okay, let's bring this all together. When I was first starting working on this sermon, I had two working titles. Two Ways to Live, or The Gospel According to James. You can see both of those threads running through this entire passage. But the more I got into it, the more I realized that Two Ways to Live is the Gospel According to James. That for him, the Gospel is not some spiritual transaction that just determines my eternal destiny. No, for James, the gospel is everything to do with our lives today. That the good news is that you don't have to live like the world lives, in their foolish ways of thinking, in their jealous conflicts, in their untamed tongues, in their discriminations. There is a better way, and it's God's way. You see, we often think about the gospel as something that we share with unbelievers. But James isn't evangelizing unbelievers here. He's confronting believers. 
As believers, we need to be reminded of these gospel truths every day. We need to be reminded that uh, we've been influenced by the world and that worldliness is foolishness, right? It's actually an upside-down way of thinking. But when we stumble, he gives more grace. We need to live in a state of humble repentance, sorrow over our sin, resisting temptation, drawing near to God. We need to learn to live these gospel truths every day. So friends, let's stop being friends with the world and start being friends with God. Let's pray. Our Father, how we need you. We come to you in humility and repentance over how often we have followed the ways of the world. But we thank you. We can't thank you enough that you give more grace. So we come to you for, for grace. Uh, pray that you would lead us and help us in, in removing the worldliness from our lives and teach us to think your thoughts, teach us to value the things that you value. Father, may that be how uh, we direct and, and live our lives uh, today. We pray in your name. Amen. This is Rico Veca, and I am also a pastor at New Song Family Church. I want to thank you for listening to this message today, and it is my hope that you will join us again for another New Song Family Church podcast. <laughs>